of Jesus' ministry, preaching, teaching, and healing. We just came out of the Sermon on the Mount. That's kind of the preaching and teaching piece. Matthew 8 and 9 contain nine miracles, and they're all compressed. If you read Mark and Luke, these miracles occurred um, over uh, several years of Jesus' ministry, and Matthew pulls all of them and squeezes them together in two chapters because he's wanting to show, see, he did this as well. He preached, he taught, and he healed. Um, in John's Gospel, when anytime Jesus performs a miracle, John refers to it as a sign, and I think that's probably more helpful for us. Uh, for Jesus, miracles were not showstoppers, they weren't attention-getters, they weren't crowd-gatherers, they were signs, and signs point to a reality greater than themselves. Some of you will be traveling this weekend, you're hungry, you see the sign for Cracker Barrel, you don't pull underneath the sign and expect somebody to show up and give you food. You follow the directions to the restaurant. That's what signs do. They point to something beyond themselves. And that's what these miracles do as well. So the first question is, well, what do miracles, what, what, what are they assigned for? What are they pointing to? And the answer is pretty simple. They're pointing to the coming of the kingdom of God. That was Jesus' message and John the Baptist. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of heaven is near. This kingdom of God is breaking into our world through the person and the ministry of Jesus. And every miracle that you read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts is, is a demonstration of the fact that this kingdom is coming. Every person who is physically healed, that's a sign that the kingdom is coming, that the effects of the curse are being rolled back. When Jesus delivers someone from a demon, when he casts a demon out of somebody, what he's saying is, I'm stronger than the prince of this world, the devil. See, I can kick him out of here. When he raises someone from the dead, that's Jesus saying, see, I've triumphed over death as well. When he does a miracle in creation, he calms a storm or he feeds a lot of people with a hand with a little bit of food. He's saying, see, I'm the Lord of creation as well. Every miracle of Jesus points to the fact that the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God, is breaking into our world in the person, in the ministry of Jesus. Two pictures I want you to keep in your mind as we read these miracle stories. This is the first one. It's this idea that Jesus has come, he's come to rescue us. Anybody who desires to be rescued, Jesus won't leave you behind. Physically, spiritually, relationally, whatever way you're trapped, that's what Jesus came to do. He was on a rescue mission to deliver us from slavery. He says whoever sins is a slave to sin. He came to deliver us from, slave, from sin, which ultimately makes us slaves to Satan and to death as well. And Jesus rescues us fully and completely from that. That's a personal, that's individual. I want that picture in your mind. Every time you read about a miracle, I want you to say, Jesus is saying, see, this is what I've come to do. I've come to rescue you from this enemy-occupied land. Second picture, this is from D-Day. That was uh, June 6, 1944. Allies landed on the beach. They're storming the beach. Most people who look back would say this was the turning point in the war. The war was effectively won on this day. It wasn't until 11 months later in May of 1945 that the Nazis officially surrendered. You've got 11 months between when most people would say the war was won and when the war was actually over. And during those 11 months, there were 766,000 um, Allied casualties. Almost 200,000 men died during that time. And that's where we live. We live in between D-Day and V-E Day. Jesus' resurrection... That's Normandy. That's when the victory was won. But it won't be until VE Day, his second coming, 
that his victory will be complete. We live in that 11-month period where victory is assured, but we still have an enemy, and the bullets still work, and the tanks still work, and the airplanes, it all still works. And the bombs still kill you, and the bullets still hurt you. And that's this this in-between time that we live in. The kingdom is coming, but it's not fully here. And these miracles point to the fact that the kingdom is breaking into our world, and so we can trust that the kingdom will continue to advance, and we also have to recognize that we won't fully taste the, uh, the, the benefits of that kingdom in their fullness until Jesus returns. As we get into the parables, we'll see Jesus says, listen, I'm going to let weeds and wheat grow up together until I come back. There's going to be good and evil, and they're going to grow up together. All of you have lived long enough to experience the effects of the fall in your life. Sometimes people are healed, and sometimes they're not. Our souls, that's, that's 100% guarantee. He saves our souls right now fully and completely, but a lot of times our bodies, it's not happening. We still struggle with death and everything that leads to that. We struggle with doubt, we struggle with frustration, and we still experience the effects of sin and evil in our world and in our lives. It's because we're living in that 11 months between when Jesus came once and when He's coming again. I want both of those pictures in your mind. That's what these miracles point to. The King is coming, and He's coming to rescue us. If you find yourself in bondage today, that's, that's a guarantee. He will rescue you. And yet we live in this in-between time where we still have to wrestle with some of the effects of the fall. John 20 says this, Jesus performed many other signs or miracles in the presence of His disciples which are not recorded in this book in the Gospel of John, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Jesus performed a lot more miracles than we read. He opened the eyes of a lot more people. He healed a lot more people of leprosy. He cast demons out of a lot more people than the stories that we read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so the question is, well, why these? If you believe the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, why these stories? They're all, they all tell us something about who Jesus is. The Gospels are intended to give us a portrait of Jesus. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so these miracles tell us something about God's heart, about His character, about His priorities, about His agenda, about the things that He cares about. And so as we're reading these three stories, what I want you thinking of in your mind is, what, can I, what, what conclusions can I draw about the character of God? What, what, in, in reading these stories, what, um, what can I know about who God is, about the things that are important to Him? Because that was the purpose of these stories. Let's start in verse 1. When He came down, that's Jesus, from the mountainside after preaching the Sermon on the Mount, large crowds followed Him. A man with leprosy or some other skin condition came and knelt before Him and said, Lord, if You're willing, You can make me clean. Jesus reached out His hand, touched the man. I'm willing, He said, be clean. Immediately He was cured of His leprosy. Then Jesus said, see that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer, offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Real quick, some people wonder, how come Jesus repeatedly told people not to tell? If you want people to know what you're doing, how come you're telling these guys not to tell about these miracles? Guys that study this call that the Messianic secret. There was a way that Jesus was going to be the Messiah, and he was going to be the Messiah by being this humble king who would die on a cross. There were all of these popular expectations for who the Messiah would be and how he would function, and if, if word got out, and it didn't come from Jesus, if just the word got out that there's this miracle-working guy who's, doing, who's performing all of these signs that are pointing to the kingdom breaking in, 
then Jesus is afraid they're going to hijack his ministry. You can see that, I think it's in John, when Jesus feeds the 5,000. It says that they try to take him and make him king by force, and he has to slip out um, through the crowd. And He doesn't need that. He's got enough stuff going on. He doesn't need um, this, this pressure, for lack of it. It's not, he doesn't need the, the interference of the crowds, I guess, trying to make him a Messiah other than the way he desires uh, for that to play out. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said, I'll go and heal him. The centurion replied, a centurion is a, a leader in the Roman army. Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go and he goes, and this one, come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown out into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And then she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to, fill what, to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and he carried our diseases. Uh, you may pick up on some other things, just two things for me about Jesus' character here. One is that he loved people. He valued people. You see that particularly in this story with the leper. When Jesus made a decision to touch him, Jesus defiled himself. He made himself unclean. He broke the law. Leviticus 5 has all, Leviticus 5 has all of these rules over not touching somebody who has a condition like this. And what happens if you touch them even accidentally? You're guilty. And there's all these hoops you have to jump through if you want to be clean again. They say that guys who had conditions like this, who had leprosy, had to walk around yelling, unclean, 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 everywhere they went, because if anyone brushed up against them or even touched something that they had touched, then they were defiled. Their uncleanness was contagious. Jesus knows all of that, and he makes a choice to touch the guy. We know he doesn't have to touch him to heal him because he, he heals a centurion's servant and doesn't even go to the man's house. The touch is not important for the physical healing massively important in terms of valuing this person. Ever since he had leprosy, he has not been touched by anyone. Spouse, parents, children, that wouldn't bother me a ton, but for a guy like this, not good. You talk about being a second... They say when priests saw lepers in the open, they would run and hide because they didn't want to have any chance of coming into contact with them because if they touched them in any way, even accidentally, they were defiled and they couldn't enter the temple and perform their duties. Think if you knew that about yourself. Every time somebody even brushes up against you, they're unclean. If they sit on the same chair that you sat on, they're unclean. What does that do to you internally? As, talk about being subhuman, being ostracized from community. That's where this guy was. And Jesus values him to the point to say, I'm not just going to heal you of this physical condition. I'm touching you even while you're dirty. I'm touching you while you're unclean to show value and worth. Jesus values people. Jesus crosses boundaries. Gentiles, that's the Roman centurion, 
women, even Jewish women, Peter's mother-in-law, people who, lepers, people who are ritually unclean, all of them were cut off from the grace of God in some ways. They were excluded from God's presence in some ways. Physically, they weren't allowed inside the temple, and that's this picture of where God lives. And Jesus intentionally crosses each one of those boundaries in order to extend grace to these people. I don't think he's trying to cause trouble. He's not being provocative for its own sake. He's not trying to instigate anything. He just sees people who have need, genuine need, and he's willing to step over even religious barriers in order to, to, to touch them, in order to extend God's grace to them. So what does that look like for us? If God desires to conform us into the image of Jesus, when we see things in his character, we can say, well, that's what God's trying to do in me as well. At some point, God wants me to value people, and at some point, he's going to want me to cross barriers as well because Jesus did that. Not crossing barriers for its own sake, but in order to extend grace to others. We can all bank on the fact that if God's trying to conform us more into the image of Jesus, these, this character that we see in him, God's trying to form in us. The picture I had in my mind was the difference between being a thermometer and a thermostat. Thermometer reflects the temperature in the room. Thermostat sets the temperature in the room. A thermometer is a gauge. A thermostat is a catalyst. This is my challenge to you between now and December 31st. I think that's six weeks. You're going to have tons of opportunities with Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's Eve to, to come into contact with people. And with Thanksgiving and Christmas particularly, there's some kind of ready-made opportunities there. Everybody around Thanksgiving, you talk about what you're thankful for. And at some point during the Christmas season, you're going to have a chance to talk about why you do Christmas and how you do it and all of those kinds of things. And my encouragement to you, get up every five days a week. You don't have to do seven. Five days a week. I want you to ask God, help me to be a thermostat today, not a thermometer. Think about what's in front of you. Think about the the interactions you're going to have with people personally or in a group. God, what does it look like for me to be a thermostat? What does it look like in this situation for me to value people? What does it look like for me to cross boundaries? Valuing people, I think, for in the society that we live in, the, the primary way that you can value people is by spending time with them. Time is our most precious resource. And when we choose to give time to somebody, we're valuing them. I think if you're task-oriented, particularly during the holidays, for some of you, it's just a six-week sprint from one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. Jesus had the most important mission in the history of the world, the cross, and as I read the Gospels, I never see him walking fast. He doesn't seem to step over people. He doesn't seem to walk around people. He never seems to interrupt people and say, "Can you? I got things to do. Somehow, he's, he notices. I was thinking about that song, The Great I Am. He's fully present in every moment. Can you imagine that? The God of the universe is never distracted. He's fully present in every moment. He's I am, always now. And for many of us, we're always next. And it's difficult for us to kind of scale back and say, I'm going to give you time because there's no margin. It means the Christmas cookies might not get, they might not be decorated as pretty or the wrapping is not done as well or the shopping's not done as early or Something, something has to give. Most of us don't have extra time for people. And so something has to give if we're going to invest in them. And that's kind of where the value comes. I'm valuing being with you over doing these other things that maybe are good and right and important. Crossing boundaries. For some, that may be significant. It may be racial, ethnic boundaries. For some of you, it may be boundaries in terms of unforgiveness or bitterness in a relationship that you need to cross. I think for most of us, a lot of those boundaries, it's just the kind of, we don't do that 
boundaries. That's not the way we do things. I remember the first time Misty came to our house and I was introducing her to my parents and she hugged them. And I'm going, we don't, we don't do that here. Do y'all know that blessing, God is great? Y'all know that? How old were we when we were saying that? 22? Yeah, 22. Something like that. We said that. And I remember the first time my brother said a different blessing and kind of lifted my eye. That's not, we don't do that here. And for some of you, that's what it is. We're in these ruts, and this is how I relate to him, and this is how I relate to them, and this is what we do when we gather, not for the sake of being provocative, not for the sake of stirring up anybody being uncomfortable, but what about for the sake of extending grace, being a channel of grace into a situation? I remember we do Christmas at Misty's family's the Saturday after Thanksgiving. I remember the first time her mom said to me, I want you to do a... Christmas devotional. I'm going, I don't know. I want you to do this. And so we've got all these, there's like 15 kids under 12. They have a pile of presents in their lap, and they can't open them until I'm done talking, which is a perfect setup for a meaningful message. But what she decided was, hey, we're, we're going to do something different. Jesus is, we say, he's the reason we're gathering together, so let's inject him into the mix here. Some of you are saying, well, I'm a kid. My parents say, you're all adults. You have say-so in what goes on in these family gatherings. And again, it's not making people feel uncomfortable for its own sake. It's saying, if I cross this line of that's not the way we do things, is that an opportunity, does that extend grace? Does that, op- does that open up a window for grace to come into an interaction, into a relationship that may not have been there before? That's my challenge to you between now and the end of December. I want you to do that every five days, five days a week. You get two days that you can be a thermometer. Five days a week, I want you to be a thermostat. I want you to ask the Lord, what would it look like for me to be a catalyst for your grace in this this relationship, in this interaction? It could be, I I don't know. My assumption is most likely the things that he's going to ask you to do are pretty minor. Just reach out and touch the leper. That's all. Just touch him. That's all you got to do. You don't have to go to the temple and tell everybody, hey, we don't need to do this anymore and all these rules we have are discriminatory and they're devaluing and just touch the guy. That's all you got to do. We're going to flip as we head towards ministry. Instead of seeing ourselves, obviously we want to do, we want to emulate Jesus in all that we do. I want you to put yourself in the position of this leper, this Peter's mother-in-law, this centurion, someone who has need. One thing that's interesting to me, Jesus says to the leper, I am willing. He says to the centurion, I will go. And uh, healing Peter's mother is the only miracle recorded in Matthew where Jesus takes the initiative, where he's not responding to the invitation of someone. I think what Matthew wants us to see, kind of grouping these three miracles together, the willingness of Jesus. I heard somebody say one time, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, it's laying hold of his willingness. And it's what these guys get. They've got nothing to offer him. None of them have any, they can't, none of these three people can even get inside the temple. But they see a man. They've heard him teach. They see, hey, there's something about him. They're desperate. And so they ask him, will you help me? Will you help me? And in every case, he says, I will. I don't think anybody in this room doubts God's ability. None of us question his power. His willingness, that one's tough. For some of us, we live in that 11-month period where there's some, sometimes things work out, 
Sometimes things don't. Sometimes it looks like God says yes, and sometimes it looks like he says no, and sometimes people are healed, and sometimes people die, and sometimes prayers get answered, and sometimes it looks like they don't, and we live in that in-between. And so for some of us, our, our willingness, our sense of God's willingness, it just kind of is decreasing, decreasing. With some of us, we think, well, I've got to do some things first. If I'm going to ask God to get involved in my life, I need to clean up the house a little bit, just like I would for anybody else who was coming over. I've got to start doing some things or quit doing some things. And he doesn't want you to clean up. He just wants you to ask him to come over. That's it. I want to ask you this morning, where do you need him to rescue you? Think back to that first picture. Spiritually, are you dead in some ways? Do you need life? Relationally, do you need him? Physically, financially, do you need direction? Where do you need him to rescue you? And do you think he's willing to get involved in that situation? In your heart, do you think he's willing? I know you know that he's able. I want to know, do you think he's willing? As an expression of your willingness this morning, I want you to come forward and let us pray for you. He's looking for faith the size of a mustard seed. That's what he says to that's why he's blown away by this centurion. He has so much confidence in Jesus' ability to heal. He says, you don't even have to be in the same room as my servant. You can say it from here and he can be healed. That, that's what he's looking for. He's looking for faith, for trust, like we talked about last week. As an expression of your faith, as an expression of your trust, would you come forward? And let us pray for you. Whatever that area is this morning. Saying, God, I believe with whatever amount of belief you've got, I believe that you're willing to get involved in this area of my life. And we'll pray that he would. Let's pray. God, we do thank you that you're not just able, but that you're willing. You're not just kind and loving, but you're also strong and powerful. And so, God, my prayer, particularly for the reluctant here this morning, those maybe who've um, they've experienced uh, the casualty part of walking in this world with you, God, I pray that they would re-up this morning, that they would, as a sign of their faith and their trust, they would come forward and allow us to pray. And there's nothing magic about anybody here. But, God, that you would respond to that faith just like you did in the life of this leper, and in the life of this centurion, and in Peter's mom, or mother-in-law. God, I pray that we would see that here. Changes in circumstances, changes in hearts, evidence of your activity in our life. God, I pray that you would come now, you would minister into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. From the ministry team, if you come forward, everybody can stand.